BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Friday, June 23rd starts now. On today's show, oh, what a week it is and oh, what a guest we have. Sarah Garza Resnick of Personal Pack. Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, whatever you're looking for, it's all right there. And if you're looking for more stuff from Ben Jarofsky, just head to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-B is in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Oh, What a Year It Was Friday, and here's why. Well, of course, it's Oh, What a Week It Was Friday. Every Friday, we uh, review the news with an outstanding guest. And this year, this week's outstanding guest is Sarah Garzner-Resnick from Personal Pack. Before we bring Sarah on, though, let me explain. It's really Oh, What a Year It Was, because it was about a year ago that the Dobbs decision went down in politics in America, healthcare in America, re- reproductive rights in America. It will never be the same as a result of that. So we're going to take a little deep dive on that one. Before we do, I have a lot of like little things I'm going to clean up, clear up, or talk about or uh, promote or what's said. There's a few things in my mind. One, right before I got came on the air, uh, Greg Pratt and listener Frank, thank you both, sent me uh, pictures of uh, Greg Pratt's book that's about to come out everybody who listens to this show show knows who greg pratt is ace reporter city hall reporter for the chicago tribune frequent guest on the ben jarofsky show he'll be on next week talking about his book and city politics and the book is entitled the city is up for grabs and the subtitle is how chicago mayor Lori lightfoot led and lost a city in crisis and his full name gregory royal pratt that is a pretty cool name Gregory Royal Pratt. Uh, from now on, Greg, I'm going to call you Royal. Um, anyway, I just want to let people know that I have been a lucky one. Greg has allowed me to read a few of the chapters. I think I read a couple chapters and the introduction. And so far, two thumbs way up for Greg Pratt. But he's tough, ladies and gentlemen. He made me sign non-disclosure agreements. I'm not allowed to talk about anything. Okay, I technically didn't have to sign the non-disclosure agreements. I mean, he's not Donald Trump making me sign non-disclosure agreements. By the way, one of the few things I agree with Lori Lightfoot from that four-year reign of hers is when she went after, who was it? Judge, Man, this is coming out of nowhere, this memory. Pete Judge on the campaign trail, uh, South Bend uh, mayor, former South Bend mayor, now transportation secretary, was running for president. Remember that, Dems? 2019. Uh, and he came to Chicago. Suddenly, he was like the red-hot candidate for a while. And Lori Lightfoot did an interview with him. Uh, and I remember she was, like, grilling him. You know, she just went back to her roots as a a prosecutor. She was grilling him on non-disclosure agreements because uh, at one point, Buttigieg was working for some uh, consulting entity. I can't remember the name of it. Uh, And they made their uh, people, employees, sign non-disclosure agreements. 
what a weird riff uh, to go on that memory. But that was like when she was grueling them, she goes, non-disclosure agreements are worthless. I was like, whoa, you tell it like it is, Lori Lightfoot. Many ways it was all downhill after that. But uh, Greg Pratt, great book. The city is up for grabs. At least the part I read is great. Uh, and uh, he'll be on the show next week. Uh, so congratulations, Greg. It's quite an achievement to write a book. All right. One last thing before I bring on the great Sarah Garza Resnick. I just want to say this. Now, I know it's a political talk show. And I know a lot of my listeners get a little impatient when I talk about sports. Because, you know, I'm an utterly obsessive sports fan particularly obsessive about the Chicago Bulls. And right now, if you hear, just put your put your ear outside, like to the window, you'll hear sobbing and whining and crying. And those are Bulls fans because the Bulls traded away their draft rights, so they didn't get a, uh, a first-round pick in last night's draft, NBA draft. They're crying. Oh, we didn't have a draft choice. Uh, the biggest cry is coming from someone I, I really don't want to reveal his identity. I'll just say that his, uh, his last name is Bawani and his first name is Moise. Uh, but I don't want to put those two together and reveal his identity. But he's a listener. Uh, and I believe he ran for alderman uh, in one of the wards. Uh, and he has been sending me texts all day long crying about the Bulls. How they should break up the Bulls. Uh, and uh, the Bulls management's terrible. The coach is terrible. The team is terrible. Well, I just want to say this to all you little sobbing uh, Bulls fans. I'm going to save a little spot for you in Grand Park next year for the celebration. Yeah, when it all comes, when it all comes together, Bulls fan, I'm going to save a little spot for you, especially you, Mr. Bawani. Okay, sobbing and crying right now. I'm going to save you, a and I'm going to save a spot for Sarah Garza and Resnick and her entire family. They can come join me too uh, in Grand Park when the Chicago Bulls are victorious next year. I'll be, I'm happy to be there. Okay, Sarah will be there, but will Mr. Bawani be there? I don't know. He may be licking his wounds. All right, uh, enough bull rhetoric. Uh, we'll probably do a whole show on the bulls and the draft and uh, maybe bring Mr. Bawani on. I think you uh, should probably have my nine-year-old. He would love to be he, on. Is he a Bulls fan? He's an everything fan. He wakes up every morning at 5.30 to watch Sports Center, and then he quizzes us all day and wants to know why we don't know as much as he knows. All right. Well, let's see if you can pass this basic quiz and then let's oh, let I'll probably out. fail. <laughs> Who was the number one draft choice in last night's NBA draft? I can't remember his name, but I know he's French. You know what? That's good enough. I will give you that. Ladies and gentlemen, what an astute follower of NBA. Good enough. Close enough. You know, I'm an easy grader. Uh, Sarah, yeah, I'm you. an easy grader. I just like, yeah, my thing is I believe in social promotions. Let's pass Sarah on to the next grade in sports uh, trivia. So just get her out of this classroom and move her on. All right. Uh, Sarah Garzna Resnick is uh, the president of Personal PAC, uh, the leading reproductive rights uh, political organization uh, in the state of Illinois, in my humble opinion. Uh, you all know uh, Terry Cosgrove, frequent guest on the show, dear friend of the show. I've been talking to Terry since 1990. Uh, Terry retired. Was it last year? I think I've lost track of time, Sarah. And Sarah is now um, running the show. So I thought it'd be perfect to have her come on today, go through a week's worth of news, really a year's worth of news uh, about uh, the Dobbs ruling and the impact it's had on reproductive rights, uh, health care, uh, and politics uh, across the board. I'm going to start it off, uh, Sarah, with a, a column that I just read 
uh, which I don't even know if you've had time to read it, but that uh, I'm, I'll uh, sum it up anyway for our, our listeners. It's by uh, Linda Greenhouse, who is a super smart uh, reporter for the New York Times for years, covered the um, Supreme Court. And uh, the headline is, is there any twinge of regret among the anti-abortion justices? Uh, and so what Linda Greenhouse uh, did was she went back in time and uh, compared a ruling that took place regarding uh, the rights of Jehovah Witnesses uh, not to have to salute the flag uh, or say Pledge of Allegiance. I think it was in 1940 before the United States uh, was uh, in uh, the World War II. And then the reversal of that decision three years later uh, and by many of the same Supreme Court justices uh, on the grounds that they saw the world differently. And so the, the, the issue she put out would, hmm, is there a possibility uh, that the six judges who ruled for, uh, uh, in the Dobbs decision will change their mind? Is there a possibility that within the last year or so, uh, they've like looked at the impact of the decision and come to the conclusion that, oh, my God, maybe this wasn't such a great idea. You know, maybe the world looked one way a year ago and now it looks completely different as a result of the ruling that I made. And so I want to redo what I did to undo the damages that I caused. That's the question she puts out there. And she comes to a, ra a rather jaded and cynical conclusion, if I may uh, uh, <laughs> say, which would like fit in well uh, with Chicago politics in general, uh, in general, because in many ways, uh, justices on the Supreme Courts are really politicians, ladies and gentlemen. We can get into that in a little while. But here's what she writes. Uh, so do you think she, uh, they'll be, ever be sorry or they'll have regret? And the answer is no. Quote, I don't think the Dobbs justices are sorry. They did what they were put there to do, what they wanted to do, and they were quite explicit in washing their hands of the consequences. The issue of abortion, Justice Kavanaugh wrote in his concurring opinion, quote, will be resolved by the people and the representatives in the democratic process in the states or Congress, end of quote. And if the people in whose hands the court places place the issues are sorry about Dobbs, they can follow Justice Kavanaugh's advice and take their sorrow or their fury or their despair to the polls. End of quote, end of story. Linda Greenhouse, the recipient of the 1998 Pulitzer Prize, reported to the Supreme Court for the Times from 78 to 2008. No matter what you think about Linda Greenhouse's um, worldview, ladies and gentlemen, she is a very astute uh, follower of the Supreme Court. So I urge everybody to check it out. She wrote uh, one of the best books about Roe v. Wade becoming Justice Blackman, which was one of, I highly recommend everyone to read it. It really goes into how Justice Blackman wrote the opinion in Roe v. Wade. Um, and she went through, he was the general counsel for the Mayo Clinic. And that's why he approached it from a scientific perspective. Yes. Uh, and uh, all right. So let me start by asking you your thoughts about the central thesis of this concluding paragraph. Uh, the justice did what they were put there to do, what they wanted to do, and they were quite explicit in washing their hands of the consequences. As a powerful statement, they did what they were put there to do. Riff and that, that is exactly there. what they did. If you follow this, and I was very concerned about this issue when I was actually a law student, and I could talk more about what we did or tried to do, but the 
conservative movement created the Federalist Society that has been grooming lawyers and law students for decades so that they could be placed on the federal bench at every level to undo our democracy and our fundamental rights that we have had in the case of abortion for 50 years. And that is exactly what we are seeing. They are undoing what the people, what Congress, what the people want. Um, and they are unfortunately succeeding at it. And the progressive side did not groom lawyers and law students to be ready to, um, we didn't build a bench like they did in the Federalist Society. And when I was in law school, I was actually the president, the inaugural president of the law, Democratic Law School Law Students of America. And our goal was to have chapters at every single law school to both create lawyers that would always do voter protection on election day for um, for campaigns, but also that we would be creating our own bench of judges to pull from. Uh, not only did they, not only were they groomed, if you will, to use that word, which is such a, a provocative word these days, because it's usually used in a different context uh, by uh, MAGA, um, but there was a determination that the judges be, how do I put this, permanently rigid in their worldview, never change. Uh, they, they would never be a, another David Souter, who was the justice that was appointed, I think, by Bush, mm -hmm. Daddy Bush, uh, back in the uh, either late 80s, early 90s, I'm losing track of time, uh, who sort of became liberal as time went on. Uh, and then that, like he became a clause uh, by right wingers and MAGA, like we will never allow that to happen again. We will assure somehow or other uh, that these people we put on the bench with lifelong guarantees of that seat in the bench will never, ever change. And I've been thinking a lot about this, Sarah, because uh, in one particular case, Justice Gorsuch, Neil Gorsuch, and he made a ruling. He was the, the chief architect of a ruling uh, that came out about a week ago, having to do with the rights of Native Americans uh, in adoption matters and not going into the, the great details of the, um, the ruling. Uh, but he essentially, he said that the guarantees that the federal government made to Native Americans to undo the wrongs that they have been confronting their whole life have to be kept. Okay, so that was a worldview he had where he took history and he applied it to a legal matter. And he said, we have an obligation to undo these wrongs. And I, I was talking to someone, Jim Coogan, shout out to Jim Coogan, friend of the show. I was talking to him about this. I was thinking about this. If you take out the... Uh, the, the now Native Americans and replace it with black Americans. He could make the same argument about affirmative action, voting rights cases, uh, congressional redistricting, on and on and on, but he doesn't. And so my question to you is, like, is there a possibility that any of these six judges in your humble opinion, might undergo kind of a philosophical evolution and sort of look beyond the rigid little world they live in 
and come to different conclusions about these subjects. They're free. They can do whatever they want, Sarah. They're on the bench. Donald Trump may have put them there, but they don't owe any allegiance to him. You know, he's gone. Your thoughts. I mean, listen, my worldview and what I teach my own children is that everyone has the ability to change. And I think that's what's awesome about being a human being. But in this case, I just think that the they were just as um, the article you were talking about from Linda Greenhouse, they were put there for a reason and they have been indoctrinated. And and there are lots of you know stories of people who have been indoctrinated and have left whatever the social, you know, clan they were part of that indoctrinated them. It is possible. I just think that these people, these justices are so out of touch with reality and don't talk to everyday people. And one of the problem with, I'm not always in favor of judges being elected, but at least they have to go talk to human beings to get there. I think one of the problems is these people don't talk to regular people. When they see a poll that comes out this week that, um, People want the overwhelming majority of people want abortion access and want abortion to be safe and legal in this country. It has gone up since the Dobbs decision. It is at 69 percent of Americans now want abortion to be legal. And then they dismantle it just a year ago. They just don't know what we want and we don't get an opportunity to vote for them. And that's just terrible. And they're there for life. And then, I mean, if you, I know we're going to get into it, but if you read what Alito wrote in the Wall Street Journal, it is such legalese garbage. A reasonable person wouldn't think that if you go on a private plane with somebody on a fancy trip to Alaska, that that would influence. And I have to disclose, I don't have to disclose that because reasonable people, I went to law school. I understand what the reasonable person standard is. I just think that it is so indicative, his statement of how out of touch with reality these justices are and how desperately we need justices that grew up without silver spoons in their mouth, without going to Yale and Harvard, who actually talked to other human beings and have had other life experiences. All right. Uh, since you raised uh, Justice Samuel, you know, of course, that's a big story. It's uh, ongoing this week. So I'll switch the order. I was going to uh, go through our topics. And we'll get back to the uh, the political realities of the Dobbs decision a little bit, but let's you you mentioned them, so let's go there. Uh, so I know listeners, you you follow this stuff. Uh, Justice uh, Samuel Alito, ProPublica Pro revealed this. I love this story in so many dimensions and so many it's in so many ways because it says so much about journalism today. In addition uh, to justices and conflicts of interest, uh, but ProPublica. Uh, did an investigation. They had, this is their second such investigation, overall investigations into conflicts of interest by our Supreme Court justice. The first had to do with Justice Clarence Thomas, uh, who uh, went on the, what yacht rides. Oh, I forget all the details of it, but he took a special favors uh, from a gazillionaire uh, Texan uh, developer named Crow. Uh, and then claimed there was no conflict of interest, even though uh, Crow supported some of the cases one way or the other uh, that came before the Supreme Court. Uh, that was followed up by ProPublica's investigation of Samuel Alito flying on a chartered, uh, a private plane uh, owned by what's the man's first name? Is it Peter or Paul? I always mix it up. Paul uh, Singer. Paul Singer. Thank you. Um, 
who is a gazillionaire hedge fund uh, wheeler dealer of the conservative uh, ilk. And uh, he flew uh, Justice Scalito to Alaska and they went fishing. And there's a photo of the two. <laughs> that photo's worth the. I'm sorry, man. The two of them are holding these giant. We caught this fish with my good pal, Sam Alito. And Alito's like, yeah, look at my fish. Uh, and so then ProPublica went to Alito and uh, asked him for his comment. And instead of responding to ProPublica with their questions, what he did was he responded uh, with essentially a decision like or a brief. It was like a, a judicial brief that he submitted to the Wall Street Journal, which published it. They, I still can't get over it. They, are, are the standards that low? I mean, it, it, as a writer who spent my entire life, Sarah, trying to craft an essay that like has, I don't know, a joke in it, an interesting lead, you know, you, you, you weave together a narrative, a story, and you have a little history. This thing didn't even attempt it. It was, it was a brief. I'm like, and it wasn't even, I, did they fact check it? I doubt it because they published it without having seen the article that ProPublica hadn't even published the article. So anyway, that was his defense was uh, that essentially I could do whatever I want because I'm Justice Alito. And if I want to take a seat on this private plan, I'm going to do it. And there's nothing you can do about it. Essentially, I mean, when you boil it all down, in my humble opinion, Sarah, that's what he uh, was getting at. I mean, my favorite thing is, is he says that his seat would have been empty on the private plane. So it's not a gift and that the lodge was very rustic and they weren't drinking thousand dollar wine. So he doesn't have to disclose it. Yeah. No, that seat, that way we had a lot of fun with that. Uh, the, the seat being empty. Yeah, it would have been empty because it was reserved for you. <laughs> uh, and as I pointed out, I'd love for that case to come before Judge Judy. See how she would have handled it. You know what I'm saying? Judge Judy. If she would have heard, can you imagine Alito getting up before Judge Judy? Uh, your honor, judge, the seat was empty. It would have been empty, you know, if I didn't take. Yeah, because they reserved it for you. Anyway, uh, so what it, what does what is the reasonable standard? Why don't you explain it? You mentioned that. Why don't you? Oh, geez. OK, I graduated from law school a long time ago and I don't practice law anymore. But it's basically it's in, you know, in torts claims and claims like slip and fall cases or an accident case. Would a re what would a reasonable person do in that situation, right? And so Alito was asking us to say, if I don't have to disclose it, if a reasonable person wouldn't think that this was a gift or a present or something above and beyond, this is just normal hospitality. <laughs> I mean, that alone shows how out of touch these people are. What reasonable person, what reasonable American thinks that getting invited onto someone's private plane might not lead you to think you have to do something for them? And the thing he did was to vote in the majority in a case where this guy, Paul Singer, was awarded. How much money was it? Two point four billion dollars. It would be. Yeah. I mean. $100,000 plane ride, and then you get $2.4 billion, and the American people have no way of knowing because you don't disclose it. Yeah. Uh, there is no reasonable uh, person in the city of Chicago who, given uh, <laughs> that scenario that uh, you raised, would say, yeah, that's not a conflict of interest, or that's, uh, I mean, we are confronted with uh, 
corruption cases all the time in the city, conflict of interest, bribery cases, allegations of uh, accepting favors and jobs and uh, in exchange for favorable legislation. So uh, I think that there's not a reasonable person to say, and definitely not on the Republican side, which is such a joke, because the Republicans, as I like to point out, are always quick to denounce the obvious corruption of Cook County Democrats, which they should, because you should denounce corruption. Uh, <laughs> but then they proclaim uh, that there is no corruption when he takes the, the plan. Yeah, at the end of the day, these justices are not above how we have to lead our everyday lives. And they shouldn't get to make decisions that fundamentally change the course of your life, my life, everyone listening, without having to tell us who they owe, who brought them to the dance. Well, I'm, I'm going to uh, make an assertion here and see if you agree with me. Uh, I'm going to push back a little bit. Uh, I believe, I say this all the time, there's two sets of standards when it comes to corruption. Uh, political corruption these days. Uh, there's the Republican standards and the Democratic standards. Uh, and essentially, as I see it, the, the Republicans have um, declared that no Republican can ever be accused of corruption because in any instance, it the corruption allegations, even if they're substantiated, like in the case of the Salido story, uh, or in Donald Trump's many crimes, they are the product of a witch hunt. So you can never accuse a Republican of corruption because from the Republicans' perspective, the accusers themselves are corrupt. And so they will excuse any allegation, no matter how severe, no matter how obvious, of Republican wrongdoing, regardless of how what the evidence Trump case is the obvious one. Democrats, on the other hand, do not make that argument. I can't think of one Democrat in the state of Illinois who has been denouncing the prosecutions of Madigan, the Madigan Four, the um, uh, James Weiss, who is Joe Berrios' son-in-law. The list goes on and on. I do not know what the prosecutor, the chief prosecutor was appointed by Donald Trump. If Democrats behave by Republicans, they'd be saying it's a witch hunt. He's a Trump appointee. We can't trust anything. And they didn't. And then what about this Republican? And what about the, you know, they would then then go to other Republicans to try to undercut whatever wrongdoing. So I do believe there is a difference. Democrats play by one rules when it comes to corruption. Republicans play by another. rule. I guarantee you if it was Elena Kagan, a Democratic justice, a liberal who was on a plane ride. She wouldn't even take locks and bagels. I read from some old clerk friends of hers because she was standing pure on this issue. But if she were in that plane, there would be impeachment hearings right now by MAGA in Congress. Sarah, your thoughts. I 100% agree. Listen, I run a bipartisan organization. So I have to say, like, I think there was a time when Republicans weren't like this. But they ha their party has been captured by the extremists, and those people will do anything to win. They don't care what it takes. They lie. They spread mis and disinformation. And a lot of Democrats were not all perfect, right? Everyone makes mistakes. But we do believe, I think, as a proud Democrat, in the institutions themselves. And so when people like Madigan or Burke or, you know, 
all of the litany of things we have seen, people just say, okay, that's not right to do. Um, I mean, frankly, in my opinion, we probably should have called out those people decades earlier um, and not let them wreak havoc on a lot of our systems here in Illinois. Um, I have a lot of feelings about that. I know we're not here to talk about that. Um, but when people are brought to justice, we accept it, right? And we don't, um, they're used for political purposes to differentiate people, right? To say, I'm not like that because of X, Y, or Z. But the Republicans, you're absolutely right. Elena Kagan, Sonia Sotomayor, there would be witch hunts against them. Yeah. <laughs> there would be protests all over the place. And we're sitting here sending polite letters saying, we need to have some rules. Could you guys come talk to us about the rules? I mean, at some point, when are we going to take control of this and say enough is enough, no matter what party you're aligned with? All right. So we'll uh, we'll address this issue because relate the question you just raised, because it relates to where uh, the political issue of Dobbs, Uh, the. Republican strategy, the MAGA strategy, the Donald Trump's strategy has been effective. I'm going to mix my metaphors. They have worked the refs. That's a that's a uh, that alludes to a basketball strategy that coaches do, players do. You see it all the time where uh, every foul called against your team uh, is treated like a great outcry, like a great crime against humanity. Uh, the, the moaning, the, the, the hair pulling. Uh, the wailing, uh, and the notion is, is if you continue to do that, the next time that referee will give you the benefit of the doubt. So Republicans have been successfully doing this on every step of the way with Donald Trump. Anytime Democrats raise a question about Donald Trump's uh, crimes and misdemeanors, or allegations of crimes and misdemeanors, it's a witch hunt. Anytime Democrats raise question about a Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas uh, getting favors from his billionaire pal or uh, Supreme Court Justice Alito getting favors from his billionaire pal. It's an injustice. And so Democrats are so scared, Sarah, that they're looking that people will believe the Republicans that they hold back to a certain degree. And they bend over backwards to show (laughs) that they're fair, they're impartial, they're giving the benefit of the doubt to the Republicans. So they don't even play this game the way the Republicans do. They're so afraid of being called out by Republicans. I and I think it goes back to that, um, you know, the Michelle Obama quote, when they go low, we go high. And I'm just wondering, I don't I don't know how that plays right now. Public opinion polls show that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee. There's a possibility that Donald Trump could be the president 2024. And I just feel like. If that happens. It is because, to a certain degree, Democrats have allowed Republicans to influence the general public's notion that any attempt to criticize meaningful criticism of Donald Trump's behavior or Alito's behavior or Thomas' behavior is partisan partisanship and shows that the investigators are corrupt, not the people they're investigating. So I think Democrats should push harder on this front. Your thoughts? No, I totally agree. 
listen, the world is watching us and our children are watching us. My two little boys say to me all the time, mommy, how is Donald Trump not in prison? And it's a really hard thing to have to explain to your kids. Um, I mean, my kids know I used to be a criminal defense lawyer, so they know all about that. And they know that people are presumed innocent and until found guilty. And I, I do believe in that. Um, but I think Democrats have to realize that our democracy and frankly, our planet, because of the differences in climate change, are are at stake right now. The, the stakes are it's just too high mm. and we have to politely fight back and not let them control the rules of how this game is played. Um, I do believe that Michelle Obama's right, that we have to go high. I don't want to start mudslinging and get in the pit with them, but we have to find a way to hold them accountable at, from a higher level. It, Cause I don't think her quote means we ignore them. I don't think it means that we just turn our eye and keep plotting ahead and, and, and be, you know, act ignorant to what they're doing. It's saying, play the game smarter, be more strategic, and don't be afraid to stand up for yourself. We, we are right about this. It's not that Democrats are right about everything. We're not. But about this, we are right. And our very democracy depends on whether we win this or not. All right. Uh, let's get back to Dobbs and the political ramifications of it and the uh, the consequences from a medical standpoint. Uh, one year in, it was a year ago that the Dobbs decision came out. Kind of as I, you and I were talking before the, the show, we've been wrestling with its uh, implications because uh, the decision was leaked about two months before it came out. Uh, but whatever, I think June 24th, isn't that the date that it was officially released? So it's been, a, by the time you're listening to this, ladies and gentlemen, a full year. Uh, so let's start at the top. What are, what are the, uh, well, just to start with the uh, sort of the, the health ramifications of the, the Dobbs decision across the country. I mean, we're torturing pregnant people. I mean, that is what is going on. There are people having to be routed from their home states, taken away from their families, because I have to always remind people that the majority of people who have abortions are people who already have children. They're people just like me who are trying to raise their kids. We don't have an infrastructure to help families. We do an abysmal job doing that. And then they find themselves with an unwanted pregnancy because they're looking at the children they already have and they know how much money it costs to keep the food on the table, to keep a roof over their head and to have the patience and care to love their kids and to help them grow into, you know, blossom into the adults they're going to be one day. So that's what we're doing in this country. So there are people who find themselves with an outright ban in their states. And 50% of counties in this country do not have any health care for women. And it's only going to get worse because who wants to become a gynecologist when you might get sued and you can't act or criminalized and you can't actually help your patients with the full spectrum of health care. So we have people with unwanted pregnancies who are having to travel leave their families, take time off from their jobs, lose their jobs, go places to other places like Illinois, which is amazing. And we have an amazing governor and amazing legislature and a great attorney general who have done so much to help protect us over the years and organizations like Personal PAC who have led the charge. And then we also have people 
who I've had two children. When you go in for that and every listener who've had children, just remind yourself what it felt like to go in for that 20 week ultrasound that is making sure that all the parts are there where they're supposed to be. And unfortunately, there are people that find themselves hearing the most devastating news I can imagine receiving that there's something wrong with the fetus that you're carrying. And there's no way that, and I get chills and I want to cry right now, even thinking about it, but there's no way that that child is ever going to live. And that most often they are in extreme pain because of the health consideration. And the people that are finding themselves in those situations are being brave and speaking out because either they're having to stay in their home state where abortion is banned and live knowing that the child that is inside of them is, is, is probably in pain and then being forced to deliver a child that is either dead or will die instantaneously. And, or they have to come here to a place like Illinois, away from their family, scared that they're going to be criminalized when they get back home so that they don't have to carry what is going to not be, result in a live birth. I don't know a bigger definition of torture. That is what we are seeing. And these people who are brave enough to speak out are true American heroes because they are risking being sued in their states with the laws that allow that, being thrown in prison for doing what they did. Um, And it's unconscionable. And I think that these stories are seeping into the, the zeitgeist of America right now because the polls show growing support since the Dobbs decision and growing support also for not only first trimester abortions, but abortions that have to happen later in pregnancies because people are actually realizing, oh, you, this is so complicated. Every case is an individual and an individual doctor with different health concerns. You can't write public policy about these things. And that's why the government needs to get the hell out of it. But now we're in this mess and we have to deal with it. All right. We'll get into the specifics. We're in a state by state mess. I don't know if you saw the ruling in Wyoming, uh, judges ruling in Wyoming, the state of Wyoming was an extreme MAGA state, uh, actually ruling on behalf of abortion advocates, on behalf of abortion rights. So it is a literal state by state fight. That is the consequence of getting rid of a federal rule uh, governing, like what Roe did, a federal rule governing abortion, uh, declaring it legal. But I got to follow up on something. That was a great riff you went on. And the last time we were in the show, you had another great riff of, uh, about abortion rights. Uh, we put it up uh, on our Instagram page. I don't know if the show has an Instagram page. Uh, it was like a 30-second riff, Sarah. I don't even know if you saw it. I don't know if you're on Instagram, but whatever. We put it up there. So we put a lot of stuff on our Instagram page. Uh, generally, doesn't like most stuff that we put up does not get any hate. You'll get support. People will watch it. Uh, you know, they'll like it. Maybe one or two will comment, but really no hate. Sarah Garzner Resnick, you got some serious hate from your ref. I don't know if you saw it. Man, the things they said about you. Uh, <laughs> and then they said, I'm mad at me too. So it wasn't just you, but uh, we were called groomers. We were called baby killers. Like you were accused of brainwashing women. Uh, but a lot of baby killer stuff. 
so I got my feelings about it, but love to hear your thoughts about when you go out in the public arena and you make uh, the comments that you make, you do the advocacy that you do, you promote the issues that you believe in, and then you get called a baby killer. Yeah, I mean, I have um, pretty thick skin. I wouldn't have taken this job if I didn't. Uh, I love babies a lot whenever I can get one <laughs> from someone else because I'm not having any more of my own. Uh, I like to hold them. Um, but I'm going to throw it right back at them because the hypocrisy from the extremists of the anti-choice movement is so beyond the pale to me. I mean, I'm going to talk about two things. One, the care economy and two, guns. They only care about fetuses because they've been brainwashed to do that. That's their business. Fine. But let's leave abortion out of the picture. When children are born, we don't have free childcare. We don't support the birthing parent um, in how they deal. Because having giving birth to a child, which I've done twice, is traumatic. And we need to care about the, the, the women who are giving birth and give them the best postnatal care they can. We don't do that in this country. We don't have postpartum doulas for people that come to people's homes. We all, I mean, I can go on and on and on. We don't have free early childhood education. Not every child has access to high quality education. We don't have access to high quality food. We don't have access to high quality medical care. So if you love babies so much, you would join in, in advocating for all of those things that other Western societies do have. We don't have free paid parental leave. I mean, all of the things that would make health babies and children and parents healthy and thrive. We have no care infrastructure in this country. It should be treated exactly the same way roads and bridges are. Our economy would flourish. Human beings would flourish. And we would not have so many traumatized people. Then the exact same people that like to call me a baby killer, if you tried to take away their guns and have appropriate safety measures on guns, all the things that I'm sure you've talked about on the show a million times, they don't want that. So the children who go to school can be murdered at school with assault rifles, and, and that's fine. But we care about a bunch of cells that, by the way, don't have a heart formed until they're in 12 or 15 weeks of gestation. We care more about that than we do my third and first grader who goes to school. And after every mass school shooting, I have tears in my eyes when I drop them off because I don't know if they're going to come home. This is ridiculous, and it is hypocrisy, like in its highest form. So when you make the case that you just made, which is a strong case, uh, and I have no reason to add my thoughts to it because you kind of summed up everything I believed, I thought. Um, and by the way, if we put this out on Instagram, which we probably will because it was a great riff, uh, you watch. They'll be back. I don't even know if they're real. They you know, like my millennialistic friends and these, they'd be like, you know, Ben, those are bots, man. They're even real people. Well, you could be right about that, but there's sure a lot of them. Uh, so when you have on one side the bot or human being, let's let's give them the credit, say it's a legitimate human being saying baby killer, and then your response, what do you think? the swing voters of America 
are going to go. Your sense of reading the political tea leaves, because Personal PAC is, after all, a political organization that makes contributions uh, to candidates running for office uh, and renders them worthy of an endorsement or not endorsement. So very political organization, very astute political pragmatists who run it. Uh, So where do you think the country is going right now, where on one hand, you got someone responding to you on on my Instagram saying baby killer. And the other hand, there's your response to them. Go. I mean, the polling bears it out. Almost 70 percent of Americans want abortion to be safe and legal. And it is growing since Dobbs. It is not going down. That's what's so important to point out. And the other really interesting and I'm just going to read it to make sure I get it correctly. Gallup said that in 2020, roughly 25% of Democrats and Republicans alike would vote only for a candidate who shared their view on abortion. But the share of Democrats saying that this has jumped since the Dobbs decision is up to 41% now. 25% said that they were, it was a litmus test. They would not vote for somebody who wasn't pro-abortion. It has gone to 41% in a year. That is stark. And it, it and when you go down the age bracket, it just gets higher and higher, right? The younger people, the generations that are coming behind us, it's way more than 41%. They will not vote for somebody who is anti-choice. And unfortunately, what the Dobbs decision did is that these stories of people, people being tortured by these laws are going to keep coming. And I hate that this change has to fall on the backs of people who are being tortured. I, I really do. But I, I'm so, I applaud them. I think they're so courageous to use their stories to shape public opinion because when people actually know what it's like and when people talk more about their own abortion experience, it changes people's minds because it's not this black and white thing. They're actual real people whose lives are being altered forever. So I just want to make sure I understood what you said correctly. Uh, did you say 41% of Democrats or independents would? Uh, well, this this poll uh, was that 20, before Dobbs, yes. 25% of Democrats said that they abortion was a, like a single issue where they would or would not vote. That has gone up to 41% in just a year. I see. So in other words, uh, I'm, I'm interpreting this on the go. Uh, as long as Roe existed, even if it was watered down, diluted, chipped away at, all right, Terry Cosgrove, I've heard you on this subject many times. I've learned my lesson. You know, he used to tell me, Roe is gone, Ben. This is before Dobbs. Roe is gone. Uh, but as, as long as it's just in name alone, it existed. Uh, de- even Democrats were more or less at ease on this issue uh, and would look beyond abortion to other uh, positions a candidate might have before they make their decision on voting. Uh, In the post-Dobbs era where Roe has been eviscerated, where there is no federal declaration of a universal right uh, for women to have uh, reproductive health care like an abortion, if that is gone, then it has become more of a paramount issue. Yep, that's those. exactly it. And I believe that 41% is an undercount. Yeah, I do too. Because I think especially when you see the numbers of young people, 
you know, turning out, you know, 40 and below in these elections since Dobbs, it's, I mean, they're blowing people out of the water. Remember, more young people from the February mayoral election to April, more young people showed up and more, and there were fewer older people who showed up from February to April and abortion was front and center in the mayor's race. Oh my God. Don't get, (laughs) you brought up the mayor's race, Brandon Johnson versus Paul Vallis. And this is me speaking. This is not Sarah, but so Chicago. Paul Vallis was essentially MAGA light. And Paul Vallis had been courting MAGA for the last two years. Uh, He'd been going on MAGA radio shows, uh, substituting for Dan Proft, going to Wake Illinois uh, fundraiser out in where I forget some uh, DuPage County suburb. And so all of a sudden he's running in the city of Chicago uh, and he has to uh, confront the fact, as Sarah's pointing out, that most people in the city of Chicago are Democrats who believe in abortion rights. He, he drags out any old, <laughs> any old Chicago politician he can to stand behind him. I see you, Tom Tunney, by the way, uh, and uh, say, oh, this man's a lifelong Democrat. And it almost worked, Sarah. The man got 47% of the vote in the city of Chicago. I just had Peter Cunningham on the show yesterday. It was kind of fun. Peter Cunningham, life, long uh, centrist Democrat here in the city of Chicago, friend of Paul Vallis, voted for Paul Vallis. I love watching him duck and dodge and do a little tap dance around the Paul Vallis, his assertion that he was a lifelong Democrat. I believe that that Paul Vallis election shows uh, to a certain degree how potent this issue is. Because Paul Vallis felt compelled to undo his two years of MAGA uh, footsie playing by calling himself a champion of reproductive rights and a lifelong Democrat. And I believe ultimately it did not work. And he's back to showing his true colors because he joined the Illinois Policy Institute, who for listeners who don't know, were responsible for a lot of things. They're funded by, you know, MAGA, huge multi-billionaire donors. But I think one of the worst thing they did recently was in November, because spreading mis and disinformation drives me crazy. And I think it's so bad for our democracy and people who engage in it should be held accountable. But all those newspapers that flooded our mailboxes lying about what the Safety Act was and trying to induce fear-based politics into Illinois politics, which is the worst form of politics, in my opinion, he joined them. He now works for them. So that, that is who he truly is. He, as you said, Ben, just had a blip of being like, well, maybe I can trick them that I'm actually not this person. And I also heard that he's liking... His Twitter feed is liking some crazy stuff again. Maybe it was hacked. Who knows? He's not responsible. That man gets hacked more than anyone I ever saw. Every time. (laughs) Greg Pratt's been all over that one. I don't know, Paul Valls. Maybe you should just get off Twitter. You know, I mean, you're hacked more than anyone. Every time he's always hacked. His Twitter feed or his Facebook feed likes some insane right-wing garbage. And he goes, I was hacked. Good God, nothing's safe anymore. So, I, look, 
<laughs> I saw that. Greg Greg Pratt tweeted that out. Uh Listen, man, I'm not quitting on 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 this Paul Vallis thing, ladies and gentlemen. I'll tell you why. I think it's very important because to me, it shows how folks can be easily manipulated, fear tactics, and um, can be motivated to vote against somebody who doesn't agree with them on the most fundamental of issues. And so I I, I view it as a test. To me, the Paul Vallis campaign, a mayoral campaign of April, was like a test run for what whatever the the Republicans are going to do in the presidential election of 2024 and the games are going to play. Uh, and if I were Republicans, I would look at that MAGA campaign, uh, that Paul Vallis campaign and go, oh, yeah, this is like a prototype that we could follow uh, to a certain degree. I, I don't think any Republican can do what Vallis did and come out and say, I've always believed uh, in uh, reproductive rights for women. I I think that would that would be the end of it, but they'll try other things. So let's shift to that. What's your thoughts on how the Republicans are going to package their position on uh, abortion rights in the 2024 campaigns? Go. Well, I think if you pay attention to what they're doing, they're starting to use the word consensus around this. And we have to have a come to a consensus about what abortion is in this country. Um, and I think that will probably lead to um, them trying to limit it by by a week of gestation and trying to come to some resolution around that. And that cannot be done for the reason I said earlier. Every individual pregnancy is different. Every fetus is different. Every women's and people who could become pregnant, our health concerns are different. You cannot have doctors making life-saving decisions and then have to go to some sort of panel to get that approved. As I said last time I was on the show, there is no middle in abortion. We do not need the government telling us what to do with our bodies. We should trust women and people who can become pregnant and their doctors to know what is right. And so I think the Republicans are going to try and do this. Now, I also think it's going to really upset their base because they've let the genie out of the bottle. And so, I mean, I thought one of the worst mistakes DeSantis made for himself politically is that um, Florida did have a 15-week ban, and then he went to the six-week ban. I thought politically he was way more dangerous as a candidate when he had a 15-week ban because I thought that then we couldn't talk about the issue because I think the majority, not the majority, I think some Americans might think that's okay. I don't want to talk about abortion anymore. But then he went to a six week ban, which is a complete ban because no one knows they're pregnant before six weeks. Um, So I think they're going to keep using this word consensus and trying to trump out the religious view. I know Mike Pence was saying something yesterday at some religious conference he was at. um, And I know, and the polls are bearing out, that the majority of Americans are pro-abortion. We need to talk about abortion. We need to organize around abortion. And we need to make sure that everybody who thinks that women are smart enough to know what to do with their bodies, go and vote on November of 24. 
Yeah, no. So this is the key. Uh, you mentioned Mike Pence. Let's get to that. Vice President Mike Pence was uh, speaking uh, at a speech. This is earlier today. Oh, today when you're hearing it, Friday uh, at a Faith and Freedom Coalition conference, which is a major evangelical gathering in Washington, D.C. Uh, and he called for a national abortion ban at 15 weeks. Uh, and he goes, every president, every Republican candidate for president should support a ban on abortion between 15 weeks as a minimum nationwide standard. Uh, and so this is the tactic uh, that they're going to follow, in my humble opinion, Sarah. And then you respond with your thoughts on this, what they're going to do. Uh, their ultimate goal is to outlaw abortion rights in the United States of America. That's their ultimate goal. But they realize they're uh, smart enough to realize that they can't openly advocate for that uh, and still get elected unless they figure out a way to steal the election. Uh, so what they have to do is say when they're running statewide or uh, excuse me, when they're running um, uh, in, in, for president for the whole country to win that map, to win that electoral map, they have to say, by and large, uh, it's a state issue. So it goes state by state. So if Florida wants to do six weeks, that's Florida's right. If Illinois uh, wants to be more permissive, that's Illinois' right. Uh, if Texas wants to be uh, do an Al a ban effectively, or Alabama or Mississippi, it's state by state. That's that's the way it should be. Uh, but this, at the same time. They give their signal that they're generally opposed with some, something like uh, the 15 week ban, federal. And so that is essentially their way of trying to get what is uh, women uh, or independent voters in the suburbs to like go along with them. You follow, like, okay, so I'm not going to completely lose my abortion rights uh, if Mike Pence is elected. I could I guess I could vote for Mike Pence on other issues or if Donald Trump is elected, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, so I think that's the strategy. Ultimately, women will lose their rights. Ultimately, the war on abortion rights will continue uh, and we will see moments when people. Uh, uh, attorney generals and in states where there's restrictions like Alabama or Texas come after women who come to Illinois. We are going to see that, Sarah. You know it as well as I do. It's just a matter of time. Uh, but to get to in, to win that next election, they're really trying to find some kind of message that will diffuse this as an issue. That's what I think they're up to. Your thoughts. First of all, let's frame who Mike Pence is. Mike Pence is a man who says he cannot be alone with a woman to have dinner, have a meeting, because that would be violating his pledge of whatever to his wife. So Mike Pence doesn't trust himself and he doesn't trust women to be in a room and I guess not throw ourselves at him. Um, even in second, in later abortions in pregnancy, in later trimesters, Support for that has even gone up in this country since the Dobbs decision. The polling is playing this out. And the reason for that is exactly what I said earlier, that the stories of people are coming out and how this is impacting individuals who are pregnant and want to have the child. But for some reason, there's some structural abnormality where the child is not going to live. Or they find themselves, they get in a car accident, 
and they're hemorrhaging and they don't want to make this choice, but it is their life or the fetus's life. Or the case where someone is diagnosed with cancer while they're pregnant. These are decisions that should not be legislated by government. These are gut-wrenching, horrible cases. Some of the darkest moments that people will have to live through. And so the 15-week ban is unacceptable and will cause people to be tortured. And I just want everyone to remember, if you have a child, just remember what it felt like to be in that ultrasound room for that 20-week appointment. And you're holding your breath, pleading that nothing is wrong. You will make any promise to any higher being that nothing is wrong. And unfortunately, some of us do find out that something is wrong. And people should be able to make the decisions they want to make over their bodies when they find out that horrific information. Yes, I think uh, I I do not believe Mike Pence will be successful uh, with this strategy. Uh, I I absolutely believe that uh, abortion will uh, just the essential decision will remain. Uh, Do you want to keep abortion rights? in this country, or do you event, do you want to head down the path to uh, eliminating it? I think that will be clear to voters uh, in the 2024 election. I think uh, I personally, uh, Sarah, I must confess, underestimated the opposition to the Dobbs decision, the political opposition. I did not see it coming uh, in the uh, midterm cycle. The first notion I got of the potency of it was Kansas when there was a statewide referendum. And I go, Oh my, this, this, this is the game changer in this country in terms of quote, unquote, even, I mean, Kansas is not even a swing state. It's a red state. Uh, and I, I subsequently watched Democrats take control of Michigan. We talk about this all the time on this show. Andrew Ellison was just on the show. They've taken control of the Michigan, both state houses, the governor, uh, the, the attorney general, secretary of state, Wisconsin, this is a pivotal election uh, in the state of Wisconsin coming up in 2024 on many fronts. So I believe that the Republicans underestimated the impact of that Dobbs decision, politically speaking, just as I did. Uh, and I believe it will be a very potent factor in 2024. Uh, and I don't know how the Republicans are going to deal with it. And you know what? That is not my problem. Okay. I, <laughs> While we're on the subject of the evangelicals, uh, their their little convenient, uh, their meeting in Florida, um, excuse me, in uh, Washington, um, this is uh, something I wanted to share with our listeners. Uh, Chris Christie, uh, the former governor of New Jersey, uh, who is running as the anti-Trump candidate uh, in the uh, Republican primary. Good luck with that. Um, And I'll read this. This is from the New York Times account. Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, was booed by the crowd as he criticized Trump and the former president's penchant for blaming aides for his own shortcomings, shortcomings. Quote, that is not leadership, everybody, Christie said. That is a failure of leadership. The crowd hissed with some shouting, we love Trump. To which Christie responded, you can love him all you want, but I can tell you, Doing that kind of things makes our country smaller. Uh, and uh, Christie was followed by Mark Robinson, the lieutenant governor from North Carolina, who's running for governor. And folks, is one of the most maggiest MAGA men in the country right now. Uh, he, uh, big Trump supporter, big right winger. He goes, this nation is at war 
we need a warrior. And he was greeted by a deafening ovation as loud or louder than any that Trump's rivals had received uh, when he made an endorsement of Trump. Your thoughts, Sarah, about Trump's impact in the 2024 election cycle? I think it's devastating for our democracy, um, but I'm ready to take him on. And I know every abortion activist in this country is. And I, I thought for the midterms, I had hope that what happened was going to happen. I know I was in the minority, but I do spend a lot of time listening to people because that's my job. I, I'm not a Supreme Court justice on the extreme right side who doesn't talk to other human beings. And when I wear a button everywhere I go, just like our founder of Personal Pack, Marcy Love does, that says keep abortion safe and legal. And I've done it for a while, always on my purse. And the number of people who stopped me, I was stopped yesterday at the Peninsula Hotel. I was had a meeting there and some woman was like, I'm from Florida and we're fighting hard. Please don't think everyone from Florida is a wacko. And I was like, oh, I don't. And she was telling me all about what she was doing. And she was here, you know, visiting one of her kids. I get stopped all the time. I believe that Americans are finally starting to pay attention to this issue and other issues. And if you look what happened in the midterm, the thing I was most heartened by and what people should pay attention to was the split ballot voting. It means people are paying attention and they're not just going in and pressing R or D. They're like, who do I want to vote for? Who represents me? And what issues matter to me? And that means that this brainwashing that Trump has done to some of us can hopefully start to loosen its grip. Um, and I think people need to, because for those of us who have kids, our kids aren't going to talk to us anymore if we don't wake up and pay attention to what's happening. They. The younger generations get it. They see this for what it is, and they don't want to inherit this mess. All right. That is a good spot as any to leave it. I will point out that uh, Sarah will be taking off her advocacy uh, hat tonight and putting on her baseball hat as she uh, cheers on her son, uh, his uh, baseball team. I think it's tonight the championship game. Isn't that what you told me, Sarah? Tonight is the, is the last. It's the conference. Tomorrow would be if they win tonight, they get to go to the World Series. So, whoa. <laughs> I've been spending every night, that's why I sound a little raspy, screaming for nine and 10 year olds on their little baseball team. But they, I am so proud of his team. It is such a cross section of Chicago. And, and to see these children work so hard as a team and support each other is exactly what we need to do in our society. And I just love it. And I lose my voice every night. <laughs> Uh, that's pretty cool. I, uh, I told you this many, many years, I was a uh, baseball coach. Uh, and uh, Little League Baseball. Well, it's not technically. I, I call everything Little League, you know, and even though it's like Little League is like a, a specific thing, but uh, whatever. Anyway, uh, Kid Baseball, uh, great game. I love doing it as much, but I'm going to tell you something right now. I say this all the time. The worst thing about uh, youth sports in America, not the kids, the parents, I could go on and on about parents. Uh, is the culture getting any better? Sarah, I've been out of these sports now. My kids are growing up. I haven't coached oh, in a long time. Uh, and uh, is, it, is it getting better? Is it getting healthier? Are parents uh, less abusive to umpires or referees? Uh, are they less hostile? 
Uh, did they show some perspective that they're actually just cheering on eight and eight and nine year olds? It's not the end of the world if the kids team lose. Is it getting healthier in that regard? You're my reporter. Tell me, is that? The yeah, case? no problem. So I got really lucky and my kid ended up on a team where I love the parents and we're all cheering and screaming and we all sound super raspy the next day and we get along and we're just there to support the kids. I have noticed on some of the other teams, a slightly different culture. Um, the umps in my son's league are uh, teenagers themselves. And I have noticed and, and witnessed parents or adults affiliated with a team it's not my kid's team, standing behind the fence and calling balls and strikes and outs like they're just watching and calling the game themselves. So what I have taken to doing is when I notice this to also walk behind the fence and stand behind them and just kind of look at them and they do stop. Um, and uh, the team we're playing tonight, I noticed, has done this on many occasions. And I plan on standing right next to that gentleman Um I can tell you the last story I'll say is last night's game, uh, our runner was running to third. He was tagged out, but the third baseman dropped the ball immediately. So that's not an out, right? Those are the yeah. rules. And yeah. the ump didn't see it. He's a kid. We don't have instant replay. And the parents on the other team were just screaming. And all I was screaming from the sidelines was follow the rules. <laughs> Oh and it's God. kind of like the same thing with the MAGA people. They just don't want to follow the rules. And it's like, what are you teaching your kids? Uh, they're watching us, people. Behave I, better. I'll tell you what they're teaching their kids. They're teaching their kids that if you play by the rules, you may lose. But if you don't play by the rules, you probably win. If yeah. there are no rules or regulations uh, in election, if Donald Trump has the right to throw out votes that went for Biden in Georgia and then wins uh, Georgia's electoral votes, then you can win even if you lose. That's what they're teaching. And and by the way, I don't know, Sam Alito, let's tie them all together. It's kind of reinforcing it. You know, there's no rules regarding me flying on an airplane to go fishing with my friend. Uh, all right. Uh, it sounds like madness still exists uh, in youth baseball. <laughs> Nothing's I will changed. be a vigilante tonight okay. on the diamond and make sure that people are following the rules. Wait, so I just want to understand. So did the ump rule? Okay. So did what was the ump's ultimate decision and at that key play at third where the ball was dropped by the third baseman? Safe or out? Out. So so because it worked. he was standing there not knowing what to do because I frankly don't think he saw it. The I other see. parents are screaming behind, right behind him, that 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 it was an out, and it all happened so quickly, and we're all screaming, "Follow the rules!" Oh my God, utter insanity. Nothing. Maybe that's going to be my next button I wear every day. I'll follow have abortion safe and legal, and follow the rules. By the way, do you? Do you wear your abortion safe and legal button to the baseball games? Yeah. I have it pinned to my fanny pack um, that I wear like cross body. I wear it everywhere. Wow. You're a badass, Sarah. <laughs> I, I, that reminds me of my dear friend Galen. Shout out Galen. The first time I met her, or one of the, not, not the first time I met her, but I remember she, her son played on my, uh, my basketball team that I coach and my football team, pretty much every team I coach. She walked in with her uh, abortion rights button. I go, Galen, you got a lot of guts. Uh, this is back in the day, late 90s, early O's. So uh, you got a lot of guts, Sarah. And uh, thank you very much for coming on my show. 
and uh, appreciate it very much. Personal packs, the name of the outfit. And yeah, keep up the good work. All right, Sarah. Thank you. All right. Thank you, uh, Sarah. And I also want to thank producer Chris doing an outstanding job as he always does. I think, I think both teams in tonight's game, championship or semi-championship game, whatever it is in that youth league. I think parents of both teams would agree that producer Chris does an outstanding job and that he should give himself a raise and that he should take it out of petty cash. Have a great weekend, everybody. And remember, you can always download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, get Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more at chicagoreader.com. Follow the Ben Jarofsky show on Instagram at Benny J show and all over the internet on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms.